So today's scripture reading is going to be in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of God. Thanks for reading God's word to us, Paul. And thanks for leading us in that prayer, Gian, for our brothers and sisters who are suffering immensely right now, even as we gather here to worship God. The fact is that it has never been easy to live faithfully as the people of God. Never been easy to live faithfully as the people of God. For our brothers and sisters in, in regions of China right now, it has become increasingly difficult. And this has happened throughout history to different parts of God's universal church throughout the world. In the year 605 BC, it got a lot harder for God's people to be faithful to him. Because in 605 BC, a world superpower, the empire of Babylon, invaded the capital, the nation of Israel. That world superpower named Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, they invaded Judah, they took over, and they took people, property, for themselves. We just read about this in Daniel chapter 1. Many people were taken into exile, back to Babylon. They had to leave the communities where they had grown up. They had to leave the culture that they knew and loved so much. They had to leave the families that had cared for them. And those people were brought to this new place, Babylon, and there they were indoctrinated. They were taught to worship new gods, little g. They were taught to embrace a, a big g, godless culture, a pagan culture. Today we're beginning a new series entitled Daniel, Life in Exile. And this book of Daniel was written around 530 B.C., we're estimating, but it was around then. 
And it was written to encourage and to guide God's people who are living as strangers, as exiles. The events that are contained in the book of Daniel take place roughly from 605 B.C. to, to 537 B.C. And God's people who were experiencing exile during that period were likely to feel desperate, worried about the future. Again, their nation had been invaded and taken over, and now many of them were probably asking the question, is our God even real? If he's real, then why has he allowed this to happen? Is our God real? And if he is real, is he going to rescue us and bring us back home? Will he have mercy on us and bring us back? The book of Daniel provides us with an an insight, a window into life in exile through the eyes of this young man, Daniel, and his friends. They would have been very young at this point, probably 15 to 20 young men. They they were brought to this new place of Babylon, and they were going to be actively lured into worshiping idols. They would have been absorbing the, the culture of that new place, absorbing it so deeply that they ran the risk of losing a sense that they were Israelites at all. And that was the goal of bringing them to Babylon. It was to indoctrinate them, to to teach them, to expose them to the culture of this new place to the point that they would lose a sense of who they were to begin with and that they would, for all intents and purposes, become Babylonians. And yet, Daniel and his friends were able to survive. Not only survive, they were able to thrive. How did they do this? On the one hand, they adopted many of the aspects of Babylonian culture. They dressed like Babylonians. They got Babylonian names. And yet at the same time, they never compromised. They continued to be loyal to their God. They lived lives that honored their God, even as they became contributing members of this new society. You see, on the one hand, they weren't revolutionaries. But the other hand, they weren't compromisers either. They lived in Babylon, and yet they continued to be faithful to the true God of Israel. They had absorbed this truth that the prophet Jeremiah had spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 29, where he said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's God talking to all of his people who he has sent from Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. What does God say to these people? He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. You see that? Seek the welfare, seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, God tells his people, go into this place. Don't isolate yourself from this new place where I'm sending you. Instead, do life. Live life. 
work, cultivate the ground, create, work diligently, multiply, get married, and pray for this place where I've sent you. Because as this place flourishes, you will flourish. Daniel and his friends would have taken this to heart. This principle is what we see played out in the pages of this book. These are young men. If you're under 20 years old here, I want you to think about this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you're under 20 years old, I want you to think about this. Being lifted out of your home right now, taken against your will to a place that is very different from where you live, a place where accountability has disappeared. No one's there to make sure that you're still worshiping God. No one's there to remind you of who God is. No one's there to keep tabs on you. And yet, you're living in this new place, and still, still, you honor the God who made you. You live for Him. You obey Him and you praise Him, even in the face of temptation to, 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 to just give up on all that. Daniel was written for you. If you're under 20 years old, if you're over 20 years old, guess what? Daniel was written for you as well, and for me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also an exile. Did you know this? You're an exile. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we are called elect exiles. It means chosen foreigners, chosen strangers. In Hebrews chapter 11, God's people are called foreigners and strangers on earth. What does that mean? It means if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in this place that you call home, earth, yeah, it's your home in one sense. In another sense, it's not your home. You're a foreigner here. You're a stranger here. The Apostle Paul explains what all this means in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in one sense, you're at home here, but in another sense, this is not your home, not your permanent home. You are a citizen. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a citizen of heaven, and you are waiting for your Savior, Jesus Christ, to come and bring you to your permanent home. Of course, we're not exiles in an ancient Middle Eastern empire. We are exiles in this world, though. For many of us, if you live right around here in Westchester County, many of us are exiles in the suburbs. It's very different from Babylon in a lot of ways, and I think it's pretty similar to Babylon in some ways. Exiles in the suburbs. Ever thought of yourself that way? Here's what one author, Jared Wilson, said. He says, I think... The spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. Think about that. Life in the suburbs can tend to smother the Christian spirit. Here's what he says. He goes on. He says, the message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self is at the center, and all things serve the self. Primary values of suburbia are convenience and abundance and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all and, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. You see, the gods that 
Daniel and his friends were tempted to worship were ancient Near East gods, the gods of the Chaldeans, and they had a lot of them. We have just as many here. The gods of convenience and abundance and comfort. What are the idols, the false gods, that you see where you live? Maybe we're so, com- we're so, oh, we're so used to them that we've grown numb to their presence. Because the suburbs can have that effect. I, I don't mean to act as if none of us have problems and none of us are struggling. Many of us are. And yet, by the very nature of where we live, there's a certain comfort, a numbing that takes place here. The book of Daniel teaches us to be in the suburbs, but not of the suburbs, for the good of the suburbs. I'm kind of paraphrasing Jesus in a sense there. What Jesus teaches his disciples in John 17 is to be in the world, not of the world, but for the world. What does that mean? It means you're in the world, as in this is where you live, but you're not of the world. That means that the world doesn't own you, and the world doesn't give you your identity. So you're in it, but you're not of it, but yet he calls you to live for it. That is, to seek the good of the place where God has put you. To seek the good of it. Whether that's suburban Westchester, or it's urban Manhattan, or one of the other boroughs, or wherever it might be. If it's in China, where you're being persecuted, as we just prayed for, or if it's in Namibia, and you're living in an informal settlement there. Wherever it is, you're called to be in it, not of it, but for it. And that's how these young men live in the book of Daniel. It tells the story of these men who are, again, 15 to 20 years old or so. Are they extraordinary guys? In one sense, they are extraordinary. We'll see why. But in some ways, they're not extraordinary at all. I'm I'm convinced that the reason they were able to survive and thrive in that culture is not because they were extraordinary. It's not because they were men of fine appearance. Learned in all wisdom. Smart. That's not why. I believe the reason they were able to survive and thrive in Babylon is because they knew God and they knew who they were. They knew who God is and they knew who they were. They had a strong sense of God and a strong sense of self. And that's what equipped them to live faithfully. So this is for us, this book of Daniel. Your your ability to live well, wherever you are, your ability to live well depends on this. Do you know God, and do you know who you are? Do you know God, do you know who you are? The book of Daniel shows us a lot about who God is. It also depicts this this unfolding plan of God. It's wonderful. Daniel fits in to to God's story and shows us the the continuing unfolding of God's plan that that started way back in the book of Genesis. This plan that started at the beginning of the Bible and it it reaches its climax when another man who is much better than Daniel shows up. A man named Jesus who was purer than Daniel, more courageous than Daniel. He was more faithful than Daniel. And the story of Daniel points ahead to him, to this other Israelite who would willingly leave home to rescue his people. 
who would live perfectly and who would eventually give up his life for his people. This story points us to the story of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's part of the story of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So we want to look at this book and we want to let us, we want it to, to point us to Jesus. And yet along the way, we, often want, we also want to learn about what it looks like to live in exile. Here and now. We want to see what it means for us to live in a place that, that lures us to sleep. And remain faithful to a God who calls us to live for him here and now. So today, it's something of an intro to this series. We're, we're going to meet some of the major personalities in this narrative, and, and we're going to introduce some of the themes that are going to show up over and over again in this story. Right? And what we want to see are three foundational realities. Three foundational realities that sustained those four Israelite men. Three things, three things excuse me, that they had come to know and believe. And these are things that we all need to know and believe as well. And they're, they're there in your bulletin if you, if you have one. Number one, God is in control. Number two, God keeps his promises. And number three, God has given you an identity. So number one, God is in control. Let's look at verses one and two. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. We have a bit of history told to us here. And we can look at this history from two angles. We can look at it from the perspective of simply what happened. Like what happened here? Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. That's what the history books would tell us. But we can look at it from another perspective here too. What is God doing here? It's a whole other angle. What is God doing here? And usually when we look at history, we're not sure exactly what God is doing. He doesn't always tell us, right? He hides it from us sometimes. But here, he tells us. What was he doing? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. That's straight-up history. But what was God doing? Look at verse 2. It was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God handed over this king to another king. God handed over this city and this nation to another empire. God is in control. Not only that, but God allowed these, these vessels, these articles, there were these, these instruments that were used in his temple. They were holy vessels, right? Cups and things like that, bowls and, and cups and utensils that were used for the worship of God in his temple. He allowed them to be taken by this other king. So it's very interesting here. You see it's kind of a tale of two kings. You have Jehoiakim and you have Nebuchadnezzar, and they're at war, but there's another king who's kind of controlling the whole thing, and that's the king of kings, the sovereign God of creation. He is sovereign, and he is in control. And these boys, Daniel and his three friends, they had obviously learned about this sovereign God. They knew that he was in control. And we're going to see that more and more as we read through their story. In fact, they knew so well that God was in control that they were willing, they were willing to submit themselves and to accept anything that he brought into their lives, which is pretty remarkable. 
It's amazing because some of us, we believe that God is in control. We believe that he's sovereign and that comforts us until things don't start, start to not go the way that we want them to go. So when things start to work out in ways that we didn't agree to, hey God, I didn't, I didn't ask for this. This, these aren't the plans I had for me or my family. These aren't the plans I had for my business. These are not the plans I had for my career, God. When those, questions, when those things start to happen, we start to, to maybe, on the one hand, question God's sovereignty, or on the other hand, we just start to get angry at him. Because, yes, he's sovereign and he's in control, but I can't trust him to do what's really good for me. Have you ever been there? I think most of us have. I have. Thankfully, God has a way of coming to us in the midst of that and reminding us that, yes, he is in control, and yes, he is also good. And he mercifully wins us back over, doesn't he? Daniel and his friends had experienced that. They, there's no, we can't know exactly what was going through their minds when they were lifted out of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. There must have been doubts, there must have been questions, there must have been fear. And yet, what we see again and again in the story is a willing submission to God's sovereign will. In fact, there's this scene we're going to come to in several weeks in Daniel 3, where his three friends, um, their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're facing death. They may die on this day. And they're standing before the ruler at that time, and they say to him boldly, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You see the trust that they had in their sovereign God? They said, our God can and will deliver us from you, mighty king. That's amazing that they had that kind of trust in God. But it's the next verse that really gets me. The next verse really shows us that they understood what it means that God is in control. Because in verse 18, they also say, but if not... If he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O God, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God will rescue us, and even if he doesn't, he's still in control. We're still going to worship him, and we are not going to worship you for a moment of our lives. That is faith in the sovereign God. Imagine the trauma that these young men had experienced and others like them that were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon, and yet they knew their God was in control, and they also knew that this was not the end of the story for his people. They knew that God's plan was to bring his people into captivity, but he also, they also knew that he would rescue them from captivity eventually. And that brings us to the point number two, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Look at verse three and four. It says there, when the king commanded Ashpenaz, or then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the languages of the Chaldeans. And Chaldeans just was one of the cultures that existed within Babylon at that time. God keeps his promises. And what I want us to see is that God keeps the promises we want him to keep, and God keeps the promises we might not want him to keep. That is, he keeps his tough promises too. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God warns his people and tells them, my plans for you are good. 
I am your God and I'll never forsake you. And yet, yet, if you reject me, if you continue to break covenant with me, if you continue to disobey and dishonor me, I will give you over to your enemies. It's a promise. I will do it. And he does it. That's what's happening here in Daniel. God is fulfilling his promise that if his people were not to follow him as God and to worship him as their Lord, they would be given over. Promise fulfilled right here. When Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and hauls off with those people. It's a kind of cycle that we see in the Bible very often. I want us to just think about this briefly. It starts right at the very beginning. God creates man and woman. He creates humanity puts them in this beautiful place and says, this is the place where you're meant to live. This is the place where I will abide with you. It's a perfect land. It's a beautiful paradise of a garden that God's people are placed in to live. But he says, if you reject me, if you will not worship me as Lord, if you will not obey me and follow me, I will send you out of here. And what happens? God's people reject him, Adam and Eve do, and what does God do? He fulfills his promise. He sends them away. And yet he sends them away with this promise that he will one day redeem them. And so what happens? That cycle of God disciplining and then rescuing. It's a cycle that happens again and again, multiple times throughout Scripture. We see it again a little bit later on, right here, where God's people are told, they're given this promised land to live in. And they're told, as long as you will follow me and keep this covenant, I will continue to prosper you, care for you. But if you reject me, I will send you away from this place. Just as they were sent away from the Garden of Eden, God's people are here sent away from the promised land. It's a cycle we see play out again and again and again. In fact, the, the, the story of the gospel it, it just encapsulates all of that. What do we see in the gospel? We see God coming to people who have disobeyed him and rejected him. And as a result of our rejecting and disobeying him, we have been cast out of his presence. Cast out of the place where we were meant to live with God in peace. But what does God do? God says, I will rescue you. I will bring you back home. And so he sends Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, to live the life that we could not live, to die in our place so that we can be forgiven, yes, also so that we can be restored to the place where God always wanted us to be, the place where we were meant to be, with our God, in his kingdom, Better than the promised land of Israel. Better than the garden of Eden. God's eternal presence in the new heavens and the new earth. You see how the cycle repeats itself over and over again and we just kind of walk in mid-story when we get to Daniel. God keeps his promises. He keeps his promise to discipline and punish, but he also keeps his promise to eventually come and rescue He always tells his people, if you will turn away from your sin, if you will repent and return to me, I'll receive you and I'll lavish goodness upon you. And so Daniel and his friends could live with that kind of hope, even while they were in Babylon. Separated from their family, far, far from home. Most people at that time were probably thinking, has God forgotten us? Is God even real? But I believe Daniel and his friends lived with the hope that just as God fulfilled his promise to judge, he will fulfill his promise to come and finally rescue. He had said, actually, God had said back in the the book of Isaiah 39, this word of warning. Take this as a promise. It's a very dark promise, but it's a promise. 
He said, behold, the days are coming, Israel, when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, said the Lord. And some of your own sons, get this, some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, they shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's a prophecy in Isaiah that was fulfilled in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. But he will keep his promise to rescue eventually because God keeps his promises and he is always faithful to his covenant. Always. And that leads us to the third point. Three foundational realities that, that, that Daniel and his friends needed to know and that we need to know and believe. One, God is in control. Two, God always keeps his promises. Number three, God has given you an identity. God has given you an identity. Look at verse 5, and we'll read from 5 to 7. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, and Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. They were brought to this new place, and they were going to be taught the ways and the language of the Chaldeans. As I said before, they were basically going to be made into Babylonians. They're going to be indoctrinated. And not just taught the language, by the way. That's big enough as it is, right? This is what invading empires would often do. Some invading empires, they would force their language upon the conquered nation, right? This has happened in many places. Some of us, some of you, come from countries where, you where your ancestors experienced this, where invading forces forced their culture on your ancestors, made them learn their language and speak their language. But it's not just about language. They, they were to learn the ways of the Chaldeans so they could serve the king. And as we read through Daniel, we find out that that included some really crazy stuff. For instance, these young men were taught the art of divination. They were taught to be able to somehow foresee future events, interpret dreams according to these manuals. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians had these, these manuals that they would use as kind of keys to interpret dreams. And so if you told your dream to one of these wise men, they could look up in their manual and, and find out what it, what it meant and could divine and figure out exactly what was going on, not only in your head, but what the gods were doing and were going to do. So they were learning these pagan practices it's interesting, though, that later on, when Daniel is called upon to interpret dreams, he doesn't rely upon pagan practices of divination. He looks to the God of heaven, the true God, who reveals these dreams to him. He doesn't need these magic arts, and yet, that's what he would have been indoctrinated in. Those are the ways of the Chaldeans. The, way, the Chaldeans were a highly superstitious, magic-believing people. And these guys would have had to learn that. In fact, in verses 17 through 20, we find out that these guys didn't just learn it. They graduated at the top of their class. They're given new names. Now, we, we know that's significant, right? On this continent in America, when, when slaves were trafficked across 
the Atlantic, to this place, they were often renamed. They were given the names of their slave owners, the, the name of their masters. Why? Because it's communicating to these slaves, you now have a new, forget who you were, this is who you are now. You belong to me. You are now property. And the narrative makes a point of pointing out how, how their names were changed. The goal, again, was to redefine them and to say, you have a new identity. Forget who your family told you you were. You are who King Nebuchadnezzar tells you you are. And yet it's amazing. We look at these names and how they were rebranded. And, and, and something, something catches you about the name of Daniel if you look at it closely enough. Because here's this man who's brought to this new place. He's being taught, indoctrinated, evaluated. Do you know what Daniel's name means? It means my judge is God. My judge is God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar can rename me. He can give me some new clothes. He can teach me the ways of his culture. But he will never be my judge. I stand before God and God alone. My true identity comes from him. He evaluates me. He stands over me. It doesn't matter how Nebuchadnezzar or Ashpenaz, the, 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 the leader of the eunuchs, or, or how my peers see me. You see, to Daniel, what mattered most of all, what needed to matter most of all, if he were to survive and thrive in this, this new culture, is what God thought of him. How does God see me? Now, this must have been a struggle for these young men. Remember, again, 15, 20 years old. They must have struggled with a sense of self-identity. Who am I? Especially as years went by, the longer they were there, they were losing touch with their culture, forgetting about those times they spent with their, with back home. And, and yet, at the end of the day, they were able to live like this. Daniel was able to live as one who says, God is my judge. He has given me an identity, and no one can take that away. You see, they took on the names of the Babylonians. They took on the new clothes of the Babylonians. But that didn't define them. The way you dress doesn't define you. What people call you and what people label you does not define you. It didn't define them, and the same goes for you. What you're wearing now doesn't define you. I remember hearing a preacher years ago when I was a young, um, a young, a young man. I, I remember hearing a preacher. It was back in the, the I would have been the late 80s or early 90s. This preacher was, was kind of yelling at us, and he was saying, why are you guys dressing with, with why, why are you walking around here with those big baggy pants and baggy clothes? You're dressing just like the world. Dressing just like this pagan world with the big baggy clothes. And I remember thinking, like, I'm looking at him with a suit, and I'm thinking, what do you dress like, man? Like, because I see a lot of people dress like that in the world, too. Why is my dress somehow more indicative of worldliness than, than yours is? We're both dressed like the world. And frankly, it does not matter because the, the world does not define us, nor does our fashion sense. Daniel knew that. He took the new clothes, but he did not take a new identity. God had already told them who they were. And by knowing God and knowing who they were, 
they're able to navigate a series of challenges. We're going to see them as we go through this story. So many different challenges. One worse than the other. Their life is on, on the line again and again and again. But they don't fear being different. That's another interesting thing about this, this group of guys. They do not fear being different. They're not afraid to stick out. They refuse to defile themselves. They will not worship false gods. When a very powerful man tells them to worship him, they say, no, we will not do it. You can kill, we read it before, you can kill us, but we will not worship you. You are not God. They won't stop praying, even when they're, they're faced with the death penalty for praying. New Hope, Daniel, this book, it serves as, as a source of great comfort to us. But it also serves as a challenge to us. Comfort and a challenge. You see, the comfort comes from knowing that, yes, God is in control. And yes, God keeps his promises. Yes, he has given you an identity and no one can take that away. That's comfort, deep, deeply, deeply comforting. And yet at the same time, it challenges us because it asks us, do, do you know God? Do you know God deeply? Do you know who you are? The way that these men had grown to know who they were? Each of us must ask ourselves these questions. Do you know who you are? Without knowing anything else about you, I can tell you this. You are made in God's image. Fearfully and wonderfully made by God to image him, to represent him in this world. And you're also a sinner in need of rescue. That's true of each of us. Made in the image of God, and yet we have warped that image of God through our own sin. So we're broken images. That's who you are and it's who I am. And yet God tells us that through faith in Christ, by believing in Jesus Christ, his perfect son, you and I receive a new identity. A new identity. Not just made in the image of God, yes. Not just sinners, although yes, that too. But more than that, beloved children of God. Sons and daughters who are loved and are valued over whom he rejoices. If God gives us a sense, a deep sense of who we are, then we can thrive, not just survive, we can thrive in exile. Even in the suburbs. If you are under 20, I want to encourage you with this example of Daniel and these young men. I think one thing they show us, if you're under 20, now's the time to know God and to know who you are. Now is the time to figure out who is God and who am I. It's a great time to do that. Ecclesiastes chapter, two, or chapter 12 says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. You see, before the years come and before you get older and before life gets harder, although I'm sure it's hard right now, he says, in the days of your youth now, 
remember your creator. Know who your creator is, and the more you know who he is, the more you will know who you are. I wonder if some of us in that age range, we've come to believe, you've come to believe perhaps that Christianity is of some interest, but it's something that will have a place in my life maybe down the road. I'll give some attention to Christianity later. Right now is not the time for for me to know God and follow him. I wonder if, if some in that age range are thinking, I must first figure out who I am. Later I'll come to know God. And that's getting it completely backwards. You see, it's by knowing God first that you will come to better know who you are. By making self-discovery the first step, you're putting yourself in grave danger. You will come to a poor understanding of who you are. You'll be confused, mistaken about your true identity. Know God first. Remember your creator first, and then, and then that self-knowledge will emerge as well. As he teaches you who you are, as, as, as you get to know the God who comes to you and says, in Christ, you're my beloved child. It doesn't matter what clothes you wear. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter if you're alone. I am with you, and I love you, and I rejoice over you. Daniel and his friends, they were not superhuman people. They were just guys who knew God and knew their identity. We're going to see as time goes on that they were men of integrity. You know what integrity means? Integrity means that... that, that, uh, Integrity means that, that your character is not uh, broken up into pieces so that you're one person in one situation, another person in another situation, and depending on how circumstances play out in your life, you'll kind of go with the flow. You will change who you are in order to fit the moment. Integrity means your character, your identity is solid. It's whole. The, one, the person you are before God is the person you are before your peers and your parents and your employers and your employees. They were men of integrity, and that integrity came from knowing God and knowing who they were, even though they were far from home. It's hard to maintain integrity when you're far from home, isn't it? In fact, the further you get from home, the further you get from accountability, the further you get from a community that's going to implore you to follow Christ and remind you of the dangers of sin, the further you get from home, the easier it is to throw your integrity out the window and become someone else altogether. a worshiper of idols, a person who lives for yourself, a person who rejects God's commands and just says, I will decide for me what is best. How are we going to maintain integrity when we're far from home? By knowing God and knowing who we are. That's how these men's character was was shaped. Notice, this is at a very young age, and it's funny, I was thinking about this in light of the passage we looked at last week in in 2 Peter chapter 1. Those qualities of uh, virtue or moral excellence and self-control and love and patience, these are qualities that these men seem to exhibit pretty strongly at a very young age. It's pretty incredible. And still their faith is strengthened more and more as they go through these increasingly difficult trials. So I wonder, have you bought into this lie that, that you can always... 
embrace Christ later on down the road. Or maybe you would say, I have trusted in Christ. I am a Christian. But later on down the road, maybe then I'll start to take more seriously following him, living for him. Right now, I've got some other things on my mind that I want to take care of, but later on down the road, I'll get serious about this Christianity stuff. Where does that idea come from? Where do we see that anywhere in the Bible? I don't see it anywhere. That's not what Christianity looks like. We don't believe in Jesus and then let's, like, have to just go through this season where we get all the sin out of our system. We live for ourselves and get it out of our system, quote-unquote, and then later decide to follow Christ. No, that's not the model that's set before us in the Bible anywhere. The only place I see that is maybe in the story of the prodigal son, and I don't know that that's a model that any of us is called to follow. That's not what discipleship looks like. These men were the product of a, of a community where they learned who God is and who they were. They must have come from homes where they were taught this. They must have come from homes. They were products of households where God was worshipped and where the Shema was passed down. Do you know what the Shema is? It's this, this passage in Deuteronomy where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart, and you will teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. They were the product of a community where the mighty deeds of God were talked about and celebrated and where God's word was believed. And so there's a question for us as a community. Parents specifically, if you're a parent, are you teaching your kids about this God, who this God is? Are you giving them a full picture of who God is? And it doesn't just go for parents. It goes for all of us as a community because we're responsible to do this for one another. But are you, are you showing and teaching your kids who God is, regardless of their age? It's never too late. A full picture. Many of us, we want to teach our kids about the love of God. We need to. We have to teach them about the love and the grace of God. Absolutely. Don't we also need to teach our children about the holiness of God? about the justice of God and his righteousness? Don't we even have to teach him about the wrath of God? A God who keeps his promises, even the tough ones that we don't want him to keep? Oh, let's be a community of parents, and not just parents, but brothers and sisters who, who are imparting to one another and to the younger generation a knowledge of who God is holistic knowledge of who he is. Imagine the pressure that these young men were under to live up to expectations, to excel, to impress. They were chosen because they were the best of the best, right? So imagine the temptations they're facing when they get to Babylon. On the one hand, maybe they're kind of proud, like, yeah, we're the best of the best. We got called out here. Not everyone did. Maybe they felt some guilt, too, because they knew some of their peers were back in Israel suffering, they're living in the palace, new clothes, new food, everything's beautiful, so they may have felt some, like, what they call it, survivor guilt, you know? Imagine the kind of pressure they were under to live up to those expectations. Do you feel like you're under a lot of pressure to live up to expectations? 
the expectations of your peers, of your employers? If you're that under 20 range, are you, are you, are you, do you feel like you're under pressure to live up to the expectations of your parents, of your teachers? Imagine the pressure. So burdensome, it could crush them. The only way they were able to try, thrive is because they knew who they were and they knew who God was. In that cutthroat environment, Daniel could say, no, 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 no. I will remember this. God is my judge, not you. And it's possible for us to live in the same way. We need to know God and we know, need to know who we are in order to live faithfully as his people and in order to survive in the suburbs. I don't think about survival so much, but yeah, if we're going to survive with our integrity in place and continue to love the Lord, it's going to take this. To live loyal to our God, to live differently from the world around us, to not get so absorbed by the idols and the pursuits around us. And the fact is that we've all failed in a million ways in this area. We have, whether we realize it or not, absorbed the idols and worshiped some of these idols. We've absorbed some of these ways around us that are not from God. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ, the one who lived perfectly, who knew himself and knew God perfectly, has died in our place. And so we are forgiven for these failures if we have trusted in him. But as a church, let's make every effort to know him more deeply and to know who we are. Even as we come to this table in a moment, let's come confessing, confessing our failures and asking him for the grace to live the way he's called us to live. Please pray with me. You are the God of the exiles, and so we worship you. Because we know that this is not our permanent home, but we know that although we are far from our permanent home, you are not far from us. You are with us. So please keep us, Lord. Teach us more of who you are. Year by year by year, teach us more of who you are and, and instill in us a deeper sense of our identity in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.